Mein Name ist Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagratz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together we're bursting the Western bubble. Today we will analyze the foreign policy of Donald Trump through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or simply who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the foreign policy of Donald Trump? Hello, Dario. Well, the short answer is that there's a good chance that we will have a second term for Trump as president of the United States. And as a result, it will have significant impact on US foreign policy, obviously. Uh, he is very, very likely to win the Republican primaries. And he has a very good shot at beating President Biden, according to the opinion polls, at least. So um, it is a relevant topic from an IR perspective, international relations perspective, to see what a Trump presidency would mean for the rest of the world. And what are the facts? Donald Trump was the president of the United States of America from 2017 to 2021. US foreign policy during that time was characterized for its unpredictability and backtracking on prior international commitments, appending in diplomatic conventions as well as embracing political and economic brinkmanship with most adversaries. Trump's America First policy pursued nationalist foreign policy objectives and prioritized bilateral relations over multinational agreements. What is the bubble? So obviously, right in the last episode, we spoke about um, the United States Republican Party and about the changes it has gone through in the last 10 years, particularly with focused on Donald Trump. And uh, we promised the listeners that we would now be looking at Donald Trump uh, himself, right? But kind of to reiterate this from last episode, um, Donald Trump is not the origin, he's not the root cause for all the troubles the Republican Party is going through, for all the troubles that uh, is there in U.S., foreign policy in general, but it, he's rather a very extreme symptom of the other root causes that we have um, discussed in last week's episode. And this is such an important thing, and I wish that more people on the other side of the political spectrum, Democrats, um, and just generally liberals, uh, people around the world who are critical of Trump, understand this, that this obsession with Donald Trump is misplaced because the obsession should be with the underlying root causes that you mentioned that can lead to someone like Donald Trump becoming president, right? If it wasn't Trump, it would have been something, someone else. And you see this all over the world. And instead, what unfortunately is visible is that the critics, those who are very concerned by this rise of populism, Trumpism, if you like, are just on a daily basis going after Donald Trump rather than um, the actual deeper down problems that U.S. society and Western society in general face. So when talking about uh, the bubble for this specific topic, it makes sense to look at Trump's foreign policy style in general. And there's six factors that kind of really define his foreign policy. First, there's no ideology. Um, second, it's a very dovish foreign policy. Third, there is a clear business perspective to it. Fourth, he dislikes multilateralism and the connected to it authority by multilateral organizations. Fifth, he has a certain attraction to strongmen with power. And then sixth, that it's very unstable, very volatile. 
Um, so let's start with the first one, that there's no ideology. I mean, in, in nowadays, when you say someone doesn't have ideology, it's almost a compliment because we believe that, oh, these ideological differences, they're the worst thing that we have in today's politics. Yes, and that is in many ways a shame because it means that people don't have any more content-related conversations about politics, about where we want the country to go. And in many ways, an ideologically free society is one where populism and people like Donald Trump can thrive because they do not need to explain their vision for the country because nobody is explaining a vision, right? And if you look at that list, you see that a number of those items are connected to this, right? So no ideology is very much related to the business perspective, which is also something you see at a broader scale, where the 21st century is all about business management, about keeping the economy afloat and not about the tough political choices that are that need to be made. Um, a dovish um, attitude is also related to this, um, having uh, a business perspective and no ideology leads to an inherent reluctance towards war, which might be a good thing, is <laughs> definitely a good thing in most cases. But these these issues that you mentioned are very much interrelated. Mm. Uh, they are, they are. Um, maybe maybe to explain this for the listeners who don't have a strong foreign policy background, when we talk about dovish foreign policy, we are talking about a foreign policy shying away from hard power, right, from using uh, using the military for advancing its own interests. Um, we're looking more towards diplomacy, multilateralism, um, soft power approaches, right? And typically in the last 20 years before Donald Trump, uh, US foreign policy was a very hawkish one uh, in all senses, right? We had uh, Bush Jr. and we had Obama, who both were very intervention-friendly in other countries. And then Trump with his America first, right, backtracking on why are we spending our military resources to fight wars all over the world that are unwinnable, um, he said, I would rather use this money at home. Yes, and in many ways, this this then becomes a good outcome from the Trump presidency. I would argue that it's good to have people who are reluctant to go to war, um, but not necessarily for the right reasons. It's just because of his lack of intellectual interest in the world and he just sees something that costs a lot of money. It's extremely expensive and it, it ruins trade relations and all that. And so he basically doesn't see any need to use U.S. military power to expand U.S. interests. Now, the problem with the ideology from Barack Obama and George W. Bush and even Bill Clinton is that they're all part of this intellectual movement that believes that the United States has this inherent duty to export democracy and freedom and liberalism towards the rest of the world. And in that sense, I think it's something to celebrate that Donald Trump is a president who doesn't believe in that um, ideological framework. Unfortunately, the fact that he has no ideological framework at all, not even an alternative to this, means that it is for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. well, well, something good for the wrong reasons uh, is still something good. But uh, right, what you said right at the beginning of, the, of your statement, right, that it is from coming from this business perspective, always leads towards the third point, right? I mean, how much sense does it make to go to war if I have to spend a lot of money? Um, not a lot because I don't get I don't right I don't get paid by the population of the country I'm invading, um, so I'm really just losing money on this. And this is playing into this business perspective, which is that that one approach. And on the other side, 
it's also based on these personal relations with other leaders, right? Of this, um, okay, I'm going to uh, sit down with the leader of this country, just like I would in a business meeting with a person from another company, and we're going to sit down and negotiate a deal. And then there will be some benefit coming out of this, right? Uh, then I will make X amount in, I don't know, in, in trade relations. So here you have a clear focus on what are the, right, almost a cost-benefit analysis of war, and on the other hand, uh, the same approach to diplomatic relations. In that sense, he's very consistent, right? He clearly portrays himself explicitly, but also in his own self-belief from the looks of it, he portrays himself as a businessman. And so he deals with U.S. foreign policy as a business proposition, um, which also explains some of the other issues that we will discuss later today. Uh, and it uh, has an impact on his own personal approach to these things, because as a businessman, if he sees an opportunity, he will take it. If he can send his son-in-law to the Saudis to do to get a business deal that's good for his own business empire, great. And he has no intellectual framework to resist that, right? Anyone who understands political um, philosophy, if you like, or um, understands the ethical problems associated with power would say, hang on, a US president should not use the US presidency to enrich themselves because that creates a whole bunch of negative externalities, negative outcomes. But for Donald Trump, because he has no intellectual framework to work with, he just goes for it. He sees an opportunity and takes it with all the consequences that come out of that. And with this short-term business type of thinking, we can also explain the fourth point, right? His skepticism of multilateralism. Because in theory, yes, the United States is paying the most towards these international organizations that it, is, it itself has set up. And that's a cost associated to, to leadership, right? Not necessarily seeing all the benefits that come from global leadership. But that's very much in line with, with all the previous points that being the global leader, being particularly the Western leader, is associated with a certain cost. And that's one that Trump, in his short-sightedness, wasn't willing to pay. Yes, he as a businessman sees billions, literally billions of dollars every year going to the UN, to the uh, World Bank, to the IMF. And he doesn't see a return on investment. He doesn't see uh, that money coming back, flowing back to him. The way it flows back to the United States is in soft power, is in diplomatic power, is in exactly as you just said, is being able to portray themselves as the leaders, at least of the Western world, of the liberal democratic order. Uh, and that has all kinds of intangible benefits. But in order to understand those intangible benefits, Again, you need an intellectual framework. You need to be able to see the complexity of the world and that not everything needs to have a direct financial return on investment. And at the same time, you're paying the majority of the bill for multilateral organizations and you receive leadership in that sense, but not ultimate leadership, right? Because it, ultimately, these international organizations are limiting your power. And that's something that Trump is not a big fan of, right? He wants to have the ultimate power. Yeah, that, that's a very important point. This idea of Donald Trump, both at home domestically, we can see his fights with institutions at home, as well as uh, internationally, he feels burdened, hampered by those institutions. Those institutions are not a tool that he can use from his perspective. They are a tool that limits his 
volatile decision-making process. It mean, it limits his, if you like, business acumen from his own perspective. And therefore, there's this inherent conflict between any global organization, because the United States is not, is not all-powerful. They might lead an organization, but a leader needs followers and needs to convince others that they are worthy of that leadership position. And that is something that for Donald Trump is too dangerous. It, it, it hampers him in what he wants to accomplish. And therefore, he has this inherent skepticism and he tends to fight global organizations because he wants to fight the authority um, that they hold over him. And based on this, right, the struggle against the limits to his power, I would say we can see his attraction to strong men with unlimited power. So at home, uh, you're limited by the Supreme Court, by Congress, by everything, by the by the establishment in this sense. Um, and then you look over at, I don't know, at Russia, uh, and you see Vladimir Putin with ultimate power. I mean, Putin can do whatever he wants to do. And that's something that, at least for Donald Trump, is very attractive, because you see this all throughout uh, the first four years of his presidency, um, that he really liked Putin, Egypt Tahid Erdogan of Turkey, uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, even Xi Jinping, ultimately, because, right, if you have power, you have power, and that's sexy for Donald Trump. Indeed, and what he also sees with those is that not just don't they have the same limits domestically that Donald Trump faces with uh, the US Constitution and all the surrounding institutions, but they also do not care as much, certainly not someone like Putin, about the global authorities, about the UN limiting. You know, he just invades a country when he wants to. Um, he uh, doesn't uh, respect uh, doesn't respect resolutions. Uh, that that is all very attractive. On top of that, a lot of those men that you mentioned, certainly Mohammed bin Salman and Putin, are very rich. Some are, people argue that Putin is the richest man in the world. If you actually amass all their, if you if you calculate all all his indirect belongings, uh, and and again, that is something that makes Donald Trump admire them. He doesn't like people who talk about complex international law and complex uh, institutional ethics. He just wants to get things done. He sees Vladimir Putin, and Vladimir Putin is someone who gets things done. Again, it all fits nicely together with his lack of ideology, his lack of intellectualism, and his focus on business. And all of this leads to an incredible volatility in his foreign policy, uh, in his general foreign policy. I mean, right the, during the four Trump years uh, was basically my time uh, at university uh, when you were my professor. And I do remember... A, a lot of instances, a lot of sessions when you would come in in the morning and say, oh, sorry, I was, I'm a bit tired. I was up all night because something unexpected happened with Donald Trump. And, and I had to explain to my clients um, well, or give perspective to them as much as you could with this completely erratic decision making. Yeah, in many ways, Donald Trump is great for consultants and analysts, right? It gives us something to do. Uh, the, the, the thing is that despite apparent superficial differences between someone like Barack Obama and George W. Bush, they all have respected this broad U.S. approach post-Cold War about United States leading the world into a 21st century democratic peace. And they have all respected the idea of the United States needing its military 
to basically export that democracy, to export that liberalism with all the damaging consequences that that entails, the, the, the horrors of Iraq, etc., etc. But it was all within a predictable framework with small differences. Maybe Barack Obama was a little bit less comfortable with using the military than George W. Bush, but it was still within the same realm of foreign policy making. And therefore, you could understand medium and long-term patterns with relative ease. With Donald Trump, because Donald Trump doesn't have any of that ideology, because he cares about his own business interests, because he he wants to basically take down the multilateral authorities that the United States has been building off, up over the past 70 years, his policy making, his decision making is completely erratic. And in not just in terms of content, but also in terms of um, the way he goes about it, tweeting out major decisions without talking to the State Department or without talking to the Pentagon, um, holding speeches that all of a sudden radically alter the way the United States positions itself towards Europe or towards Russia. It, it, it is basically a roller coaster in international relations. What's the international relations context? Now that we're looking into the international relations perspective, uh, we thought it would make sense to look at three specific case studies of Donald Trump's foreign policy, um, which really showcase all of these six aspects um, that we've just analyzed in what drives Donald Trump's foreign policy. Um, and the three case studies we picked are first uh, North Korea, uh, then a case study on the, the Kurds uh, with Turkey and their role in Syria. And then lastly, uh, the case study of uh, the U.S. assassination of um, Soleimani, a Iranian uh, general for, for, for the military. Starting uh, with the one with North Korea, because uh, this uh, kind of was, I mean, at least as I remember, the biggest topic uh, in 2017, uh, so when Trump got into power, right? So we see... Uh, North Korea being the target of sanctions of the United States for decades because North Korea always wanted to acquire a nuclear weapon. Um, you see that North Korea is part of this axis of evil, right, with Iran and Iraq and then North Korea. And uh, as it is custom with U.S. presidents, uh, right, when one U.S. president leaves the office to another one, he usually writes a nice letter um, congratulating the other one and telling him a bit about what it is like to be president. And Obama wrote uh, to Trump that, well, the main challenge for you on a foreign policy level will be North Korea and uh, the nuclear weapon. Because at that time, North Korea had officially uh, kind of managed to develop a, a, a nuclear weapon. And this meant that North Korea was even more on the naughty list, um, which then kind of led to the scenario that Trump took on this challenge. And he took on it with, um, I would say, the typical Trump style. Yeah, I and I, I don't mean this... I don't mean this mockingly, but I really wonder if when he became president, if Donald Trump could actually point at North Korea on the map. I, I, I don't, it's just, it was never on his radar screen, but he gets into office and he's being told by the security apparatus around us, you have to deal with North Korea. He reads Obama's letter. Everyone around him says North Korea are bad guys. They need to be dealt with. And his initial instinct seems to be, okay, I'm a strong man. I will take care of this. Obama was weak. He couldn't do anything about it. He allowed Kim Jong-un to develop nuclear weapons. Don't worry. I've got this. I know how to deal with the bad, bad guys. So there's a very simplistic, if you like, perspective on his job without having any information that goes beyond that basic brief that he received from institutions. And um, 
he becomes very aggressive on, on, on LinkedIn and, uh, sorry, on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, he starts using very strong, aggressive, antagonistic language against North Korea. Very undiplomatic, if you like. Well, I, I would love to see Donald Trump uh, being present on uh, present on LinkedIn. Um, I think, right? I'm humbled to announce that I am now attacking uh, Kim Jong Un for all all of the reasons. Right? I mean, for the listeners, Boulder isn't the greatest fan of LinkedIn. Um, but right, so uh, then he took to Twitter um, and he kind of put all of these feelings that you just described into words. Um, and he called Kim Jong-un, right, the, I mean, well, the, the president, if you want to call it uh, that, of North Korea, he called him Little Rocket Man and said that if he were to move, uh, the United States would unleash fire and fury on North Korea like the world had never seen before. And that leads to this first escalation. I mean, I remember these feelings of, ah, can we please stop being, like, escalating the situation um, rhetorically when there are nuclear weapons involved? Um, this kind of continued. And then suddenly, out of, for me at least, out of nowhere, uh, we, see, we have Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un meeting at a summit in Singapore where they kind of want to resolve the differences, right? Because Donald Trump is a businessman, so let's sit down over a table in Singapore and we will negotiate all the nuclear weapons off the table. And that in itself is already a huge break with tradition because keep in mind that we're talking about North Korea, which is a small country in terms of GDP, in terms of population, and has been sort of the pariah of the Western-led international community for decades. And the United States is the United States. So for a U.S. president to sit down with the leader of North Korea was unheard of, because thereby you elevate North Korea to a status that from a U.S. perspective you don't want to elevate them to. You make Kim Jong-un all of a sudden a world leader instead of a, if you like, stereotypical evil dictator in a... Uh, embargoed, sanctioned, isolated country. But exactly as you said, from Donald Trump's perspective, he says, okay, hey, I will I will deal with Kim Jong-un, mano a mano, face to face, because he doesn't really have a sensitivity for these power games. And in some ways, you could argue that's actually here a good thing, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's good for the United States not to be overly arrogant, but he did thereby make the United States smaller and North Korea much bigger than probably was necessary. Well, I remember writing an essay uh, for you about this, and I was actually quite positive um, in the beginning, saying that this was needed because if you continue treating North Korea as a little, as a little, I don't know, a, a little Luxembourg, basically, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So you need to tr put elevate them on a, on a certain level that you can then have uh, actual talks uh, talks with. And that worked out pretty well in the beginning, right? So I remember there was, uh, I mean, the, the announcement that North Korea wanted to denuclearize uh, and South Korea was involved as well. And it seemed to be going pretty well. The, the summit was a success. Donald Trump's name was in the hat for, um, uh, for, 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 for the Nobel Peace Prize. And then we kind of have this period where Trump and Kim Jong-un are exchanging letters, right? These love letters, as I like to call them, really positively. Um, so this time is going well, but then for a long period, nothing is happening. Um, because, well, if you just have an announcement and no actual work on implementation and you don't let the foreign policy bureaucrats get to work, then there's a problematic and there's, well, there's no progress. Yes, and what's very interesting, going back a little bit to what you said before, is that you're absolutely right. Talking to each other is good. But what it did break was this 
this image of the United States being the world leader taking the globe into a free direction and North Korea basically needing to sit in the corner, the naughty corner, until they would have some civil war revolution and throw out the dictatorial regime. But you're absolutely right. In itself, talking to each other is a good thing. That's why, that's why we have the UN. And the fact that previous governments, uh, the Obama administration and the Bush administration, refused to do so, um, says a lot about the negative nature of US foreign policy post-Cold War, right? Um, then you're absolutely right that nothing happens. But before that, what does happen is that Donald Trump, after having been told by, Kim, uh, by his security establishment that Kim Jong-un is a bad guy, he meets him, and it actually, they get along because all of a sudden he sees a strong man, he sees a man that he can actually relate to, that actually says some nice things about him. Um, unlike some European leaders who are all the time critical of Trump, Kim Jong-un is actually nice to him. And all of a sudden he sees a human being rather than that stereotypical bad guy that he had been told is North Korea, is Kim Jong-un. And so then you see that sort of a, a, a love affair blossoming between those two, which has nothing to do with policy, but just with the personal connection, the business connection that Donald Trump makes with, um, with Kim. However, in foreign policy, a lovely connection and writing nice letters isn't enough, uh, particularly not when we're talking about denuclearization. Um, and nothing happens. So what does Trump like? What what does Trump do? He calls for another summit. This time in Vietnam, um, and again, let's have another business sit down. Let's do this, which goes against everything we usually do in foreign policy, right? Any summit is usually just a big signing ceremony. The leaders have actually never talked to each other about this. It's really just the working level diplomats that have been preparing the wording and the actual content of these agreements for months, sometimes years prior. None of this happened. Right, because Trump is not interested in that, uh, they would be they would require reading and, and actually talking to people and having discussions on this, um, and that's also how the summit went, right? And this was one of those instances that I mentioned uh, earlier, where you came into class the next morning, looking really tired because in the middle of the night, well, in the during the day in Vietnam and the middle of the night in Europe, the summit between Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump in Vietnam completely failed and was a horrible, horrible, horrible failure because nothing got done, nothing was negotiated, and Trump tried to strong-arm Kim Jong-un, who, who didn't want to. Yes, and foreign policy exists within an environment of diplomacy, right? So I cannot emphasize enough how groundbreaking, for better or worse, it was to have two summits. So already one summit was big for North Korea, but to have two summits between the two was huge, thereby once again elevating North Korea to a status that they'd never had before. But and Donald Trump being hugely overconfident, believing that he can just grind out um, some kind of deal um, in a few days' time with Kim Jong-un because they had a good relationship before, because they had this they sent love letters to each other in the past, and um, completely underestimating the complexity of this and exactly what you said, the fact that you need months, sometimes even years of preparation before you get... Um, to a summit to actually sign a piece of paper. And the outcome of this was that the North Koreans exactly got what they wanted. Um, they basically were now a world leader that needed to be talked to. 
and the United States didn't get anything. There was no serious reduction within the nuclear arsenal. There was no reduction at all within the nuclear um, capabilities of North Korea. There was no agreement about missile technology. Um, and basically this provided a, a, a green light for other regimes of this nature to start going down a similar path hugely uh, angering and confusing the u.s foreign policy establishment yeah i mean he basically delivered a roadmap to um iran right which we will talk about in, in, in a second of how to become relevant of how to beat the united states at its own game you need to develop nuclear weapons and then the united states will sit down with you at the table elevate you to the same status and right all your goals are have been achieved additionally um this becomes a problem for your allies who rely on you and rely on your commitments towards the security and in this case we're specifically talking about japan and south korea who are both very close to north korea and therefore are the most worried about nuclear uh, nuclear weapons on the north korean peninsula and if trump is that is elevating north korea to that to that level not really not really being true to his commitments about uh, Japan's and South Korea's uh, security, then you start seeing two capitals being, well, very worried and then drifting apart from the United States and maybe going to going closer towards China. Yes, and in today's world, the people underestimate the difficulty in uh, developing missile technology and overestimate the difficulty of developing nuclear weapons. In many ways, it's much easier nowadays to develop nuclear weapons than it is to have the interballistic missiles that can actually deliver the payload, that can deliver the nuclear warhead to its target. So right now, the United States is still relatively safe because there's a whole Pacific Ocean between North Korea and the United States. Um, but South Korea and Japan are within reach for North Korea. Missile technology of North Korea is not great, but with a bit of luck, they could hit cities in South Korea and, and, and Japan. And of course, that, that brings panic to Japan and South Korea, especially if they don't know why the United States president is actually talking to this enormous threat. I mean, Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is 50 kilometers away from the border. Um, and a capital with 20 million, approximately 20 million people living there. Um, so, I mean... I feel like you, you you even need less than a bit of luck, right? I mean, as you said, you just need a somewhat functioning missile on a short distance, a nuclear warhead, and then theoretically you could lead to you could lead to chaos, right? Not not that this is particularly uh, likely as of now, but it does lead to a huge level of insecurity, levels of insecurity that we also see in the next example, and that's the Kurdish case study. For our listeners that might not know about the Kurdish case study. Um, the, the Kurds are basically a stateless uh, people in that sense, right? They are kind of right between these four countries, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Um, they, right, they are a minority in each country and are being kind of discriminated against, suppressed in each of the countries. Particularly, we see this in Turkey because the Turkish state has a right for them. The Kurds wanting to secede, wanting to become their own independent country is a, is a major national security threat um, and, and therefore interest. So you, you have the situation in general, right? Then right next to Turkey, you have Syria. And in Syria, since 2011, we've had a civil war going on where the United States and the Western allies uh, backed uh, basically the rebels against the Assad government, right against an evil, brutal dictator uh, to stay within the Western bubble. Um, 
And because they didn't want to commit troops on the ground, they basically uh, weaponized the Kurds, right? Um, also in the fight against ISIS, remember that, that terrorist group um, from a few years ago. Uh, and that, that, I mean, worked rather well when it comes to fighting against ISIS. It didn't work so well against Assad. And by 2016, that fight was basically lost, right? Assad was still in power um, and there was no major commitment by the Western allies to further support the Kurds to actually right, overthrow Assad in that way. And now Trump comes into the picture. Trump doesn't like losers, aka the Kurds. Um, Trump doesn't like being involved in the Middle East. It's expensive. Uh, what are we doing there? I don't understand this. Um, so what happens um, is that on one day, he has a phone call with another strong man, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish president, uh, who manages to convince him very shortly of basically dropping the Kurds. Yes, and once again, this happened within um, a matter of two days without any broad foreign policy um, change or strategy, without talking to the State Department or without talking to the Pentagon. Essentially, Trump coming to power doesn't know much about the Kurds, but as you rightfully pointed out, they were losing the war, a war that they were fighting on behalf of the United States, but they were losers from a, US, from a Trump perspective. And um, there's probably some kind of respect for Assad by Trump, um, right? Because uh, Assad also a strong man. And uh, then he gets a phone call from Turkey, from Erdogan, who, who smell opportunity, right? And they say, hey, you know what? Uh, this war in Syria is not going well. Do you know why? Why not? Because you can't really rely on the Kurds. They are uh, not the good guys here. They're unreliable. And the United States has given them a lot of money. Once again, that pattern of money, giving money to international relations and not getting a uh, return on your investment straight away. And so Erdogan, in a, in a phone call, basically impresses Trump with his authoritarian kind of anti-establishment approach and um, convinces him that the Kurds do not deserve further U.S. support. And unlike any other president before, instead of then going to the State Department saying, OK, what does this mean? How can we plan and how can we maybe pull back our support for the Kurds over uh, over the next few months or the next year and what what are the consequences? He just tweets it out. He says, you know what? Um, those Kurds, you know, they're not very, they're not the good guys. They're not reliable, etc. And the moment he tweets it out, there's panic in Washington. There's panic, what does this mean? Are we all of a sudden no longer allies with the Kurds? We thought they were fighting the war for us. And Turkey then interprets that, knowing how the, in, the phone call with Erdogan went, as the green light to actually invade Syria, to actually start fighting the Kurds within Syrian territory. Exactly that happened, right? So you have this situation for um, then a few weeks uh, where where Turkey is is going into Syria. The establishment, right? The media, the Washington establishment, politicians, um, they freak out, and Trump receives this, and now he's seen not so positive. Some others would say negative, um, which kind of leads to him pulling back a little bit, right? Because he then realizes, oh, no, um, the Kurds are dying. Uh, we were allies with the Kurds. Uh, this doesn't look good on me. I'm being criticized for this. So he basically warns Erdogan in the only style he knows how to warn someone in a businessman, strongman style. And basically says, um, if you uh, if you right, if you kill too many Kurds, um, we will cripple your economy. Uh, 
because, well, that's that's simply what he does, and that's his his modus operandi in that sense. And you have two, three weeks of complete chaos in US foreign policy. Nobody knows what's going on. Are we friends with the Kurds? Are we friends with the Turks who are a NATO ally, right? Um, what's happening with Assad? And uh, you, you just have someone who, as you said, right, at the fingertip of a tweet, uh, changes US foreign policy. And that's the, that's the last thing anyone in foreign policy wants, right, is erratic decision making and no long-term thinking. Because these are global... Uh networks and systems with diplomats, with military um, advisors and strategists, uh, with economic um, interests, all intimately connected to each other and creating volatility, creating chaos within that system for a world leader like the United States is incredibly damaging. Now, what's also very specifically damaging in this phase is that the Kurds, who were with their backs towards Turkey because they were fighting the Assad regime, they were fighting uh, Damascus, all of a sudden are between a rock and a hard place because they're still fighting Assad, but all of a sudden they have to defend against the Turks from the north. And they quickly make a deal with Assad. And they say, hey, you know what? Let's uh, let's forget about the past decade. Uh, we have a common enemy, namely Turkey. Can we create a united front? And in exchange, we will give up our demand for an independent Kurdish state within Syria. And so that creates a enormous um, weakness in US foreign policy and was essentially the end of US presence in the region. They no longer had anyone that they could rely on. So there was a very specific, very specific damage done by basically losing the Kurds and the Kurds now joining forces with Assad. But at the same time, there was huge long-term damage done because of the chaos and the, the ripple effect that a tweet like this and a, um, a volatile policy like this has on the broader global interests of the United States. Right, and an additional long-term effect of this is that which, let's say, paramilitary group um, is now going to trust the United States in the future? Right, because the U.S. promised the Kurds, "Hey, we will weaponize you, we will support you, uh, you will have our right also, like global diplomatic support uh, in in this fight. You do the dirty work for us. No U.S. soldier has to die. We achieve our foreign policy goal, and everyone goes home happy." Right? I mean, that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> Nobody can trust the United States in that sense anymore. So let's say in a few years, the U.S. is in need of a of of a right of a <laughs> of a militia like the Kurds again. I would I would think twice about the fact whether I would um, get into a partnership with the United States if that can change at the fingertip of a tweet. It creates an awful lot of bad blood between local groups and the United States and Washington. It's eerily reminiscent of the way that the United States uh, neglected the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 1980s after supporting the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Similarly, the United States then provided them with weapons and um, uh, training and money. Once the Soviet Union no longer uh, was successful, the United States completely neglected them. And that eventually led to Al-Qaeda. That eventually led to ISIS, to the, to the enormous anti-US movement that we've seen in the 21st century. And we have been, I don't know if the word praising is the right word, but we've been uh, praising, I guess, Donald Trump for having a dovish foreign policy because you know pacifism is generally good war is generally bad but that only is good for the united states if it comes accompanied with 
soft power with influence in the rest of the world because the United States is seen as an honest broker, is seen as a country that can be admired and can be appreciated. And this kind of volatile behavior, even if you don't go to war with other countries, only creates further animosity around the world. Well, when speaking about volatile uh, behavior, the case study with the Kurds was um, basically Trump being convinced by a strong man within a phone call and not liking losers. But again, Donald Trump likes to appear strong uh, himself and he hates it when people don't do uh, what he wants them to do. And this is what we could see in the third case study, the assassination of uh, Soleimani. So to again, give a little bit of context, since the end of the war on terror, um, right where the United States uh, invaded uh, Iraq, kind of controlled Iraq, um, but then since 2011 kind of was, was right moving out. Um, since then, Iraqi politics were heavily influenced by Iran. This is due to the fact that there's a, a large uh, group of Shia within Iraq, um, right? Iran also being a Shia Muslim. Um, so there being a lot of Iranian influence um, politically. Then there's also the uh, Qut forces within the uh, uh, um, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, right? Uh, military structures within Iran that are safeguarding the, the revolution. Um, and the Quds forces, right, are kind of like the international network of this military alliance. Um, and so they have a bunch of militias all over the Middle East, also in Iraq. Um, and here now you have, right, this is a huge pain for the United States, has been forever. It's undermining US foreign policy in the region. Um, and these forces are spearheaded by General Soleimani. And just like North Korea, Iran is part of that axis of evil, right? It's an existential threat to the United States from a U.S. perspective or to the United States' interests within the region. Um, and then you have the situation where there are protests in Iraq kind of against the U.S. in front of the embassy. Um, some say that they were staged. Um, and you in the region, you have the case that a U.S. soldier died. So you needed a reaction by the United States. Donald Trump, as he did, he was in Mar-a-Lago in Florida, right? He was golfing. Um, so the U.S. foreign policy apparatus wasn't necessarily around him, but it was just a few bodies and advisors who were sitting there. Um, and then the Pentagon provided him with 10 options uh, on the table, right, with how could you respond to basically Iranian adv advancements in the regions. And the way that this goes is that usually at the top of the list, you have a very extreme option, which is never considered. At the bottom of the list, you have a very... Right, a, a solar law option, which is also never considered because you kind of want to be somewhere between three and seven, depending on depending on how serious you, you see the situation. Well, in this specific case, um, Donald Trump had a bad day and also didn't have the U.S. security apparatus around him. So he chose option 10, which is assassinating a high-ranking military general of another country, which, um, according to my understanding of the thing we call international law, is an act of war. Yes, the, but it is an uh, act of war without the cost associated with actual war for Donald Trump, right? He doesn't need to spend billions of dollars on it. Assassinating someone is easy. Obviously, the United States knows that Iran cannot declare war on, uh, on them because they would lose that war. And so for Donald Trump, it seems like a very business-like kind of solution to the problem, right? Just let's get rid of him costs minimal uh, effort, uh, just send a few drones and that's it. And um, you basically show Iran that you're serious and that you're, so, that you're a country or a president 
that needs to be feared. Now, we should probably point out that this happens within the context of the years previously, um, Trump getting into a little Twitter war with Soleimani, where Soleimani mocked Donald Trump with memes from Games of uh, Game of Thrones and 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 other statements. And knowing Donald Trump, who doesn't have sort of the the big picture in front of him, but very much cares about his alpha male ego, he felt that Soleimani was disrespecting him and that Soleimani was another alpha male that needed to be defeated, needed to be eradicated. And that made the choice to eliminate him much easier, that personal emotional attachment rather than the broad foreign policy strategy, um, which, uh, which Donald Trump always seems to be driven by, right? Um, he always seems to be driven by that personal business-like instinct. Mm. Yeah. And, and as I said, uh, you have the outcome that this is an act of war. Uh, escalation was narrowly avoided um, because of the smart actions of the Iraqi prime minister at the time, right? Because the assassination happened at the airport uh, in Baghdad, the capital of, of Iraq. And in this sense, right, after one country kills the general of another one, there needs to be some form of retaliation, uh, right, for national pride, for a lot of other reasons. Um, and so Iran, um, being a better ally to Iraq than the United States, actually warned Iraq that, hey, we're going to attack a U.S. airbase on Iraqi soil, uh, something that the United States didn't do, right? Uh, so when Soleimani got assassinated, um, the U.S. didn't call in on Iraq saying that, hey, we're going to violate your sovereignty. We're going to tar kill someone on your country. Um, and um, so this led to the situation that the Iraqi prime minister was smart enough to call in uh, the, basically the United States and said, hey, there will be an attack on this airbase soon. Um, let's evacuate some of your soldiers, right? The United States evacuated soldiers, uh, Iran attacked. Um, there were physical damages to the airbase, but no U.S. soldier died, right? Because just imagine 30 U.S. soldiers get killed. Uh, then we're talking about a a whole different scenario than in this case, right? So you have, um, luckily, through the smart actions of one man, um, we kind of avoided escalation. But the fronts are hardened now. Um, there's no chance of diplomatic talks, right? This is also within the context of the United States leaving the nuclear agreement with Iran. Um, and it's, a, well, I, here in my notes, I wrote on diplomacy, kaput. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it, which is very likely to happen with a presidency like Trump's, right? Because because this volatile behavior is contrary to what diplomacy is all about. Diplomacy is about long-term, careful planning, creating of networks, not offending people unnecessarily, and assassinating a general from a rival country is the opposite of that. And I do agree with what you're saying that the Iraqi government needs to be praised for the way they handled this because they didn't escalate things either with the United States or with Iran. In fact, they, they basically were conduit for information, diplomacy. Uh, I also believe that Iran deserves credit here, right? We, we like to talk about Iran in Western media, in the West, as sort of just this, this hop of evil, um, of, of uh, aggressive, terrible foreign policy, but there general was assassinated and imagine a european or north american general being assassinated by iran or by china or by russia that would lead to an enormous escalation of tensions at the very least iran instead said look we have to do something 
they also had that list of options that you just described for Trump. Iran had a list of options like how are we going to react? Are we going to declare war or are we not going to do anything? No, we're just going to strike a U.S. airbase just to show that we're not afraid of them. But we'll stick to that and we don't do anything else. So thanks to Iraq and thanks to Iran, things didn't, didn't get worse. But this was a recipe for disaster. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? As you said, a recipe for disaster, um, a lot of damages. So we've already outlined the damages from these three case studies, right? Uh, North Korea being elevated to the status of the United States almost. Um, you have a roadmap uh, for other countries to kind of get what will get what they want from the United States. You have uh, allies um, being unsure about how much can we trust the United States, right? You have uh, U.S. legitimacy being undermined. Um, you have its foreign policy being undermined. Um, and then you also have just, I mean, almost escalation uh, to the levels of, of war. So in general, I think, right, this volatility in particular and this business approach to foreign policy, one of the main damages now in general is that there's simply no reliability anymore. Right? I mean, foreign policy relies on a certain stability. You need to be able to assume, okay, what's the other side going to do, right? That's that constant, basically, tango of international affairs. And uh, if no, if no, your adversaries and your allies can't really rely on your actions, then uh, what are you going to do, right? There's no consistency, and that's a huge problem for the United States. Especially for the United States, right? Because it is the United States, because it is still very much the most powerful country in the world uh, that has been leading international relations for the past 70 years, that is behind all the international systems that has been have been set up. You know, if Luxembourg is a little bit volatile in its, um, in, in its foreign policy, maybe it will harm Luxembourg's interests, but the rest of the world will not really notice. However, the United States being volatile in its foreign policy is hugely damaging not just to Washington, not just to the United States as a country, but it's damaging to everyone else around the world because it creates anarchy, it creates uncertainty, and it creates panic. It leads to other countries starting to prepare for the worst. That's why having a volatile um, president who doesn't have that intellectual and ideological framework to work with is such a threat to global affairs, despite him not going to war as easily as maybe some other presidents. And there's an example that just came out recently uh, because Trump told the world about it himself at one of his one of his rallies, um, where he talked about his time as U.S. president and a conversation with a European leader of a bigger country, right? Whatever that means. Um, and during that, uh, during that conversation, uh, Trump was asked whether the United States would still defend uh, that European country or European countries if they were to be invaded by Russia, right? This is before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, very important. Um, even if they, right, if they don't pay their 2%, right? That uh, the 2% that uh, every uh, NATO country vowed to basically dedicate towards their own military as part of being NATO. And some European countries are basically not paying that, right? One of the huge pain points for Donald Trump and his business perspective, right? He was really mad at countries for not pay paying their fair share and basically taking advantage of the United States. And then Trump kind of recalled during this rally that he told his president, and I quote, in fact, I would encourage them, Russia, to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay, you got to pay your bills, end quote. I mean, we're no longer talking about 
volatile messages here that kind of undermine security. But I mean, the whole idea of NATO is that by promising that everyone is going to defend each other in case of an attack, right? Uh, that's the entire idea of it. You 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 want to basically build up your military and you want to build up, build up that image of, hey, we're going to attack you and attack against us doesn't make sense so that an attack doesn't happen in the first place. And this, uh, I mean, the lack of intellectualism, the lack of right of of understanding of international relations his business perspective his volatility his his like his, his love for for strongman that all plays into the statement and and that's incredible that the statement like this can happen that this, this person has been considered for years president indeed just as as you were saying this i was going back to the exactly that list that you listed in the bubble the six points and all of them appear here so because of the lack of intellectualism, he doesn't understand the damage that he's doing to the global scenario. He doesn't understand how NATO works and that the deterrence factor is based on automatic um, com common defense. Um, his dovish nature leads him to be very skeptical about going to war, even if someone else gets attacked. Why should the United States go to war? Because he doesn't understand the value of that. His business perspective says, hey, if they don't pay, why should we be paying? His anti-establishmentarianism, if you like, his anti-multilateralism uh, means that he has very little respect for NATO beyond what NATO can directly do for the United States. He likes Putin, so he feels like if Putin wants to do something, he should get away with it. And he creates volatility and instability by keeping this vague and by not having a clear approach that everyone can rely on and predict and so it's the perfect example of the six bubble issues that we've discussed previously. And what now? Based on these bubble issues, right? So this is this was Donald Trump from 2017 to 2021. Um, since then, a lot of things have changed, uh, right? He got voted out of office. Um, he got he became more extreme. I would say uh, you can definitely say that. And uh, this is due to right the fact that um, even if he becomes president, right one more time, he will be a one-term president. That's because in the United States you can be a maximum president for two terms, um, and he was already president before, so the next presidency can only last four years per the constitution. Uh, that makes him a bit more extreme now in the sense that right he doesn't need to think about re-election. In, in then four years time, right? He can just be himself 100%. But there's also another element to this one-term president scenario, um, which is a bit more difficult for him and his power as president. Then. Yeah, so he um, has been radicalized um, even further than before. Um, he uh, has been embittered by the fact that he lost the elections. This built up this whole like dialogue uh, narrative of why he lost the elections and that he did actually lose the elections, but it was just the establishment being corrupt against him, etc., etc. Um, and he now will come back with a greater volatility, a greater anti-establishment uh, approach because the establishment has been fighting against him. Biden very much the establishment candidate. And now he is much more likely to do radical things, exactly because of the, that limit of four years. The, the system will be working against him because he's, a, he's going to be a one-term president, but uh, he will have only four years to basically consolidate his legacy 
and he will do so through an embittered, radicalized approach. And that is something that could be very scary for not just the United States, but the rest of the world who have to suffer through that foreign policy. Right. I mean, this topic, and I mean, I assume also this is why uh, this episode is a bit longer than, than we usually do, is one of those that kind of really gets your mood down. I mean, we're living in, uh, in global times that are interesting, to say the least, right? There's, there's war everywhere. I mean, we have Ukraine, we have Israel, uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, we have Donald Trump at the horizon. Um, kind of one more reason to uh, to kind of reconnect to the topic that we uh, we brought up at the beginning of this year to just let, let's be nice to each other <laughs> let's be let's be nice to each other because uh, being positive at the moment is a, is a bit difficult it is difficult absolutely and it is it is particularly hard um, when it comes to the united states because every five years every 10 years seem to be another bad five or 10 years for the united states and some people might somehow find pleasure in that because they blame the United States for the horrific invasion of Iraq in 2003 or for other terrible foreign policy um, steps, missteps that they've taken. However, um, without the United States being there at least as a potential light that the rest of the world can follow, we're falling into anarchy and we're falling into a world where nobody knows where we're heading and what's going to happen. And then you have a volatile President Trump making that even worse. In such a world of anarchy and uncertainty and danger, it's all the more important to be good to each other and to look at each other with friendly eyes and not to assume the worst, right? This seems like the right moment to end today's conversation on the foreign policy of Donald Trump. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote do you bring for us today? I chose a quote from Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a very influential foreign policy advisor to multiple administrations um, in the United States in the 20th century. And he wrote... American exceptionalism is a reaction to the inability of people to understand global complexity or important issues like American energy dependency. Therefore, they search for simplistic sources of comfort and clarity. And the people that they are now selecting to be, so to speak, the spokespersons for their anxieties are, in most cases, stunningly ignorant.